Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy inspires leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million and beyond by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping them accountable to actually get it done. If you're interested in actually doing it from a strategic retreat to designing a world-class strategic plan and help keeping you accountable to actually get those results, reach out to us at 40strategy.com. You can email us at catch, like catch a ball at 40strategy.com. So our shout out today is actually to our listeners. We just recently have been voted in the top one and a half percent of all podcasts globally. And to help us reach our 2030 big, hairy, and audacious goal to positively impact a million people and 10,000 organizations, we need your help to continue to grow. So please continue to rate our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for your continued support. And with that, I am looking forward to introduce our guest, Alex Sidorenko. Alex is experienced executive across strategic investment and operational risk and insurance working with multi-billion dollar corporations in Australia, GCC, and Europe. He successfully implemented changes to quantitative risk analysis, risk-based decision-making, and neuroscience. He's saved more than $13 million per year in premiums on cargo and PDBI insurance through industry-leading quantitative risk analysis without changing deductibles or limits. He's also successfully presented corporate risk profile in the Ministry of Finance, helping to secure more than $1 billion in extra funding. He's also the author of the most popular free risk management book in the world, with more than 150,000 downloads in three languages. Alex is from Zug, Switzerland, and Alex, welcome to the Measure Success podcast. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for having me, and uh, welcome to your listeners. Absolutely. Well, I always love having international guests, a completely different perspective, and so Alex, do, and, and I put you through a test I don't typically do. You, you actually created a PDF document that we'll talk a little bit more later in, in this podcast. Like, how, how do we make sure we relate to the audience that we have? Of course, primarily in the U.S., but we have global uh, listeners as well. Alex, tell us a little bit more what you do on a day-to-day basis. So, so my career has been from the very beginning in risk management. And risk management is this relatively new weird discipline where it adds an additional kind of mathematical scientific angle to human decision making so whenever we you know whenever we make choices whenever we make decisions we usually base it on some sort of internal model or some sort of our intuition our experience it's basically something that we have programmed in our mind and it's like this internal model that we use for making the choices and believing that we are making optimal or best choices. And so there's this whole science of risk management, which says, well, actually, if you apply different techniques, you can significantly outperform your intuition whenever making decisions, whenever you're planning, forecasting, budgeting, um, trying to figure out what is the fair price, for example. um, And this is one of the reasons why the European Risk Management Association named me the best risk manager last year, and uh, RIMS, the US Risk Management Association, um, gave the whole team a, a special international honor, uh, honorable mention award. And uh, that was the reason 
where we tried, we, we took an existing insurance buying process that most organizations have and, you know, most humans have for their uh, personal lives, you know, the car, home insurances, health insurances. So we took that, what was a very well-established uh, business process within the company, and we started rethinking kind of common practices, you know, best practices, something that everybody in the market told us, oh, this is how we always done it. And this is the best way you can possibly do. And so we started, we took, we took that and we just added some math to recalculate the hypothesis. You know, for example, somebody said, you need to insure this much risk. Well, we went ahead and calculated how much risk we actually need to insure. Or they said, this is the fair price and you won't get better than that. And so we went ahead and calculated the fair price because we, we knew the methodology on how insurance companies calculate the fair price. And so, so we thought, you know, why don't we do the same? And so we recalculated that. And then we brought that back to the markets numerous times, you know, one after another, every single renewal we had throughout a year, uh, we brought our kind of math thinking hat on and um, by just using the counter arguments because, because we were surprised that every time we recalculated something, it actually turned out that the original promise was not true. Mm. So somebody said, this is the best you can get. And we said, well, that's not good enough because it's way too expensive because the fair value is 300, you know, three times less than that. Or sometimes the fair value should be seven times less than that. And so we took it back to the market saying, well, we've done our homework. We've used the kind of this risk thinking hat on and um, we've got a different answer. What, what do you have to say? And um, so they um, agreed with us most of the time, um, but it was enough for the company to save $13 million without sacrificing the quality. And this is very important. I mean, I suspect not many people in the audience know how insurance works. Um, but it's, it's very easy to save on insurance by sacrificing quality. Well, we've done the opposite. We actually improved quality every single time. Sometimes we doubled, sometimes we limits, sometimes we um, increased limits by seven times and still saved 13 million real dollars, you know, hardcore cash. Um, so it was, you know, it was a wonderful feeling presenting at the end of year review at the board saying, uh, we've, we've just used a little bit of math and it wasn't even that complicated. Like I, I wish I could say we've built the most sophisticated models on the planet. No, we actually used kindergarten math you know, for, for, you know, for, from our perspective, from risk management perspective, we use some of the most basic math and still save $13 million without sacrificing the quality and actually improving the quality. So this is what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I take any business process, any plan, any forecast, any decision, and I see if I add a little bit of math, uh, specifically, you know, math around uncertainty, um, if I add that to the mix, would that change the decision? Like, would that change the original view that something was good or bad? And to my surprise, you know, 16 years in risk, and I'm still very surprised, most of the time it does. Most of the time you add a little kind of, you know, risk magic to the, to the pot, it really changes the, the the final decision. Okay, so I had at the question: Have you ever run into something where you found that they're actually being charged not enough? I have. Well, I have not. 
I have found two instances where we were charged close to a fair fair price, and uh, we just that fine. You know, thank thank you. You know, well, well, well done. And uh, in insurance, it's uh, car insurance and health insurance. Um, they're usually priced reasonable because there's a lot of data and actually use better mathematical models for forecasting the fair value. Um, not not an incident insurance, for example, incident or you know, your health insurance is good. Life insurance is a, is an absolute joke. So like whenever you uh, and um, you, especially like if you got a mortgage and the bank makes you get get a life insurance, you you have to know that you're basically being you know they're stealing from you because it's just so unreasonably priced. Um, what I did, however, find is that uh, geography plays a significant part in by just how much risk is overestimated or underestimated. Um, because what I found in Eastern Europe, for example, whenever they try and calculate the fair value of an investment, like they're trying to buy a, a plant or a business, or they're trying to value the business so they can buy a share in that business, um, like in you know private equity where you just buy a portion of somebody else's business. What I found in Eastern Europe is that risks are so underestimated that the value is very different to a fair price. Compared to that, in the Middle East, I found that risks are usually much kind of are, are usually estimated more realistically. There is more kind of buffer for uncertainty. There is no this um, fairy tale life where th you know, everybody thinks that you know, life is perfect and everything will be the same and you know risks don't exist. Now I think they're taking quite a pragmatic view. And what I found every time I had to support large investment deals in the Middle East is that whenever we try to calculate uh, how would uncertainty and risks affect those the, those deals, uh, we actually showed that it looks like they're doing a pretty good job. Like they, they value risks pretty well from the very beginning. Like they don't need to be, um, it need, doesn't need to be brought to their attention that they just forgot all of the important risks to include in the, in the price. So yeah, it does differ from um, geography to geography, but there's, um, there's, the whole, there's the whole field of study called behavioral economics and you know, two Nobel Prizes in 2002 and 2014 um, dedicated to research on how humans in general underestimate risks um, whenever, especially if they're faced with a situation which is kind of not benign, not typical to them. So we, we, we can probably like figure out if um, you know something, some some sort of imminent danger is affecting our life, and we can probably figure out not to eat, you know, poisonous mushrooms in the forest. Um, but when it comes to slightly more complex, uh, newer problems, like you know, uh, buying a property, you know, investing into your ch children's education, you know, relocating, um, you would have thought people are really, really good at those kind of, you know, basic life decisions, but they're, they're not really. You know, buying cars, phones, 
uh, vacuum cleaners. Um, so there's the whole this this whole field of study that investigates how humans are predictably irrational. Quoting uh, Dan Ariely, an Israeli scientist, um, humans are predictably irrational, and so my my job is basically to be I don't know this contrarian devil's advocate who uses mathematics to highlight to the decision makers that maybe they're just focusing too much on some optimistic scenarios and completely disregarding all the pessimistic scenarios that are all there. They, they, don't, they don't just disappear if you don't think about them. Uncertainty is kind of, it has all, everything, the, you know, the bad sides and the good sides. Um, so, so yeah, that was kind of, that, that's, that's, my, that's my role. Uh, trying to make money for the companies that I work for um, by quantifying uncertainty and seeing if that kind of changes big decisions. So Alex, we are, we're coming off of one of the most globally interesting with the, the, the pandemic that we just experienced with COVID, right? Um, completely unsettled markets across the world, habits, experiences, et cetera. Um, and here now, relatively close to you in, in Switzerland, we have now the Russia-Ukraine conflict, uh, the war that's going on right now. Um, we have a huge disruption in energy supply um, that's taking place in Europe. I'm kind of curious how much your energy costs have increased in your home. home. Maybe you can include that in your answer. I just, just out of curiosity. And and then we, we have this, you have the UK, uh, which is having significant disruption right now. Help me, you know, first of all, you said something kind of interesting. You said people have kind of forgotten about COVID. This is prior to our call. But when we were getting the prep, you're like, they've forgotten about it because how significant the conflict is today. Give, give, our, um, give our audience a little bit of lessons of how this is impacting economically, decision-making, risk-based analysis that perhaps wasn't considered, you know, before this year started. Um, so, so let me kind of let me uh, answer it in parts. So the first, I think the first important message uh, is that there are always you know, big global things happening in the world somewhere or other. And uh, yes, we now have you know, probably close to a dozen you know, big things that are happening could have a significant impact. Um, what, um, what very much surprises me every time something like this happens, you know, because before COVID it was cyber attacks, before cyber it was climate, then before climate it was something else. It was all, it's always something. And um, there's this misconception or I guess um, a, a narrative, which is a very popular narrative for commercialization purposes, because it just, you know, it just sells a lot of news and you know, whatever you know, services and, uh, and, and whatever else. Um, so there's this hypothesis that you know, we need to act and change our approach because there is something new happening, some sort of you know, major global volatility happening, and we need to respond to that. Um, it, it's, of course, it's true, but my point is, I think, much more fundamental than that. Because if there was nothing happening in the world, like absolutely nothing. There was no conflict, no inflation, no COVID. Like if there was nothing happening in the world, humans would still be fundamentally inherent, inherently bad at dealing with uncertainty and risk. So our kind of our 
issue of misjudging, not seeing, miscalculating, and mis um, kind of dealing with uncertainty is so much deep, deeper rooted than any existing uh, existing conflict, and. In, and this is, for example, this is why I created, you know, this Risk Awareness Week, which is this annual, um, one of the biggest risk management and decision-making conferences in the world. And I run it every year. Um, and you know, this year we have like 40 different workshops from different um, risk and decision scientists uh, and practitioners from all over the world. And every year I don't focus on current affairs. I focus on the underlying fundamental skills because by understanding, for example, three sciences, you know, probability theory, decision science, and neuroscience, I can figure out how to respond to any risk on the planet, whatever the new sexy risk will be next, you know, next year. And by understanding like a select, select number of mathematical techniques, most of which are close to a hundred years old, the, and you know some of the some of the theories, mathematical theories that we use to deal with uncertainty are like five hundred years old, yeah. and, and th they're still sufficient for dealing with modern day, um, you know, uncertainties. You know, for example, you know, NATO uh, now modeling different scenarios responding to Russian aggression in, in Ukraine. They use the same mathematical techniques we use uh, in. Um, you know, buying a toll road in Brazil. And that mathematical technique has been created in 1946 as part of Manhattan Project. Um, so, so in answering your question, we, we, we are going to talk about current affairs and, and how, uh, how, how scary they are and how they just amplify, significantly amplify the current risk exposure. Uh, but the point I want to make for the, for the audience is that, you know, just because there's a new flavor of the month risk today, it doesn't mean our methodology actually changes. The math, the math behind dealing with uncertainty has been pretty consistent for the last 500 years. And over the last 70 to 100 years, the tools kind of developed a little bit more because the computer power became sufficient that now I can use my phone to simulate different uncertain futures. And uh, that just gives me more insights quicker. Uh, and previously, for example, during the Second World War, they had to have like a whole room of huge computers that took days and months to process something that my, my phone can now process in about a second. Um, so the, and, and this is very important, whatever the, whatever the next risk, you know, whether it's COVID or monkeypox or, uh, or uh, a next war, you know, the war spilling out from Ukraine into into Eastern and then Western Europe, um, or the underlying methodology, the kind of the approach behind it from a risk management perspective is still going to be the same because in you know, inflation risk, yes, inflation is now really high, but the math behind inflation risk is the same as it was you know, 500 years ago. Um, so that in my mind is more important because once we kind of once we say that, um, well, the, the math is always the same. Kind of the math is the same behind different risks, and we don't even need to go into the space of like artificial intelligence. Um, most of the risks can be dealt with with a little diagram, like a bow tie diagram or a decision tree or an influence diagram on a napkin, and then that napkin can be modeled or simulated 
in Excel on the mobile phone almost. Um, so so the, 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 the real kind of the real issue and part of the um, part of the problem, kind of part of the root causes. For example, a lot of the like all, all the markets are down, you know, just the, the markets are collapsing. Uh, and but the, the reason they are collapsing is not because something is fundamentally uh, new or scary. There's a portion of that, of course, but let's just for illustration purposes, let's pretend that there's a 20% the kind of, of the causes. There are multiple, multiple causes and 20% of all the causes are associated with new threats and kind of new age that we live in. Uh, but in my hypothesis is that the other 80% of the causes of the economic economies all over the world collapsing and um, I don't know, we're somehow still balancing, not in, uh, um, gee, what's the, what's the English word for when the economy goes into the negative? Oh, recession? Recession, yeah. We just, yeah. we somehow still balancing on the kind of edge of the recession. Probably gonna, some of the countries we're gonna fall into recession. Uh, and uh, the 80, other 80% of the causes is not that something new and unexpected happened, but it's just that when the governments were supposed to deal with the normal issues that they were supposed to deal, they didn't do it properly. And the, the, and the same with businesses. So the point I'm trying to make is that our traditional kind of normal day-to-day planning and budgeting and forecasting and pricing business processes within the organization are so fundamentally flawed because they ignore uncertainty and they've kind of they've always ignored uncertainty that the flaw in the existing the kind of the mistakes that the businesses and the governments made along the way became the biggest cause of the current situation than the new things that then just kind of piled on top of it and uh, tipped the scale towards disaster. Uh, because what I observed, you know, being a, um, a chief risk officer and the head of operational risk and insurance in various multi-billion dollar corporations is that it's not like business is doing perfectly and the business is, has this like amazing, you know, business processes and they do everything great. And then suddenly something happens and everything collapses. No, it's like they're always doing something really, really bad, just on the kind of on the edge of surviving. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so they accumulate all the small mistakes along the way. And then there's just kind of one thing that just tips the whole thing, tips the whole thing over. Because like, look at any planning, strategic planning or investment planning or budgeting or portfolio optimization. Look at any of those processes and they're so mathematically flawed. They basically like there's, you know, in 1904 or 06, a Danish mathematician um, with the last name Jensen uh, created this Jensen's inequality, which basically says like, if you build your business plans based on single point estimates, you're pretty much stuffed. Yeah. You are you, mathematically, you, because you're ignoring the volatility of different assumptions, like for example, you say, we're going to sell 100 units, we're going to price it at you know, $20 this month and then 35. As soon as you start planning in single point estimates, as long as you basically collapse the whole unpredictable future into some sort of single scenario, that, that's it, you failed. You, your, your methodology is so fundamentally flawed that no matter how amazing you are at predicting, and you know, people are not actually that amazing at predicting, 
And but no matter how amazing you are at predicting, as soon as you collapse this humongous, you know, multiverse of uncertain futures into a single scenario, that's it. You you set yourself for failure. Mm. And so in my mind and in my experience, the much bigger problem is not the current affairs that kind of tip over the scale. It's the previous other, I don't know, however, however many years we had of good economy, you know, 10 years since the last financial crisis. So it's the, the bigger issue is the last 10 years where businesses continue to be so complacent that they just continue to pretend that, you know, setting KP, single point KPIs and single point budgets and um, setting up, you know, prices based on some sort of obscure, weird methodologies. Uh, and so like any, any process that I looked at, and I only looked at few, so I can't say for like all of them, but every single time, because what, what my job was is that the, a, a business department or like a shareholder would say, look into procurement because I think we're taking too much risk there. And or I think we're not taking enough risk and it's uh, unjustified. We need to take more risk because we are just leaving money on the table. So whenever we, my team would look into a process and put our little risk hat on, we would discover that something is completely not right. <laughs> and uh, I think the bigger issue is less of the current affairs, but the kind of the previous 10 years of complacency where we still operate with those kind of made up management principles mm. that they never worked, um, but we just don't question them. Like, you, you know, for example, how this, you know, Maya Briggs uh, test and a lot of other management fads, um, which have been investigated and proven to be absolute charlatans, uh, basically horoscopes for dummies. And, um, and yet, you know, they still somehow drive business decision-making. And so there, there, there is a lot of that. And, and so in, in my kind of mind, um, that's, that's, kind of, that's, that's, that's the real big issue. We, we, we're basically using made-up tools to deal with the uncertainties of life. And uh, whenever we, our tools fail us, and they fail us at every single corner. Like COVID came, management just went down the drain. Um, fail. I mean, it was it was actually it, it was actually kind of lucky that COVID wasn't more devastating than it was. Mm. Because if COVID was more devastating, then it would just wipe out you know, half the planet. Because we were completely unprepared. And the speed of preparation and the, just everything. It, it, was, it was just absolute pure luck that COVID was relatively mild compared to, I don't know, Ebola. Because imagine if Ebola was spreading as quickly as COVID, um, we would have been dead like five times over. And um, so, so I, I, I think the, the, the kind of the takeaway is is fundamentally wrong because every time something new hits we think it's that new hit pro problem and not our failed management practices that we had all the time it's like 
well, we failed. Our, our business planning failed with, with COVID completely. And, you know, business continuity management failed most of the time. And we're not saying, well, is something wrong with our planning? Is something wrong with our business continuity management? We don't say that. No, we're just saying, oh, this was a, you know, an, a, a big issue and we need a better plan. What, what if the whole plan from the beginning was a fundamentally flawed practice and we don't need a better plan. We just need something completely different. Uh, and so, you know, risk kind of has some of the answers to some of those questions. So right now I'm going to, I'm going to share actually the document. I'm going to share the, my screen here. Okay. So those who are listening, of course, I want you to talk through for those who, who aren't watching us on, on YouTube. Um, just a minute. Let me share my screen. All right, here we go. So you, I really appreciate this, Alex, because you have the opportunity to work with companies all different size, but often they're multi-billion dollar or multi-million dollar large organizations that are that are global. But we have a lot of audience members here. They're entrepreneurs. They're like, well, what is this for me? And, and part of our discussion is like, these concepts apply to you, whether you're a small solopreneur you know, you have 10 people in your business, you have 100 people in your business, you have 1,000 people in your business, the same funnel, fundamental purposes apply. So I want you to talk about these um, these three steps to help make your business more resilient. So maybe hitting that first part about not don't ignore expected losses. So give an example of like something that may make sense from, once again, a, a traditional business owner. Sure. And I'll, I, do, I would start it with a premise. Uh, so in 2002, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Vernon Smith got a Nobel Prize in economics uh, for investigating how humans make decisions under uncertainty. Uh, but what they basically came up with, and that's very important, um, is what Kahneman calls system one and system two thinking. And this is very important for listeners, by the way, if uh, any of you haven't read uh, Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking um, Fast and Slow, highly recommended, um, Nobel Prize in economics. And uh, it's uh, probably not the easiest text to read, but it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's a bestseller, global bestseller for a reason, uh, global business bestseller for a reason. Uh, so the, one of the theories that he discusses that the human brain uh, to preserve energy uh, most of the time is in system one mode. System one mode is basically this energy saving mode where you hear something, you see something, and your brain automatically gives you like this immediate response. Um, and system two is kind of when we need to fire up our engine, actually consume quite a lot of sugar, glucose uh, from our blood. So it's quite draining for the human to think. And, but that's when you start thinking, analyzing, and um, actually investigating the problem and then investigating the solutions. And, and so the reason I'm saying that um, everything I've said up to now and everything I will say following, you have to keep in mind that your immediate response is system one. System one is basically energy preservation where the brain kind of looks for some template or old experience related to that and just gives you that and you interpret whatever I'm saying through the lens of your previous experience. Now, scientists, the reason I'm saying that this is important is scientists, scientists have actually proven time after time that your system one response, uh, especially for kind of new complex problems, most of the time is wrong. So you think you got the answer, but your answer, your kind of your first initiative, in, 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 in initial gut feel 
um, subject kind of you know, this uh, experience from based on experience, initial answer is wrong most of the time. And so you, it actually requires quite a lot of effort to switch to system two thinking and uh, understand the, the real meaning of the words that are being said or the things that you see in front of you. Um, so be mindful, be mindful of that because most of the things I'm about to say will not register even though they are life-changing. Um, but you you may need to, first of all, like there's a general rule is like, don't listen to complex topics on an empty stomach, like eat some sugar. And, um, um, and, and so what I'm about to say is actually very, very important. Uh, so every risk uh, on the planet is a distribution. Distribution, which basically means it's like it's it's not a bell shape. It's it's more like a skewed bell shape. But what this implies is that any risk—fire, theft, uh, losses in investment—there is a big probability of kind of small to moderate losses, and then smaller probability of moderate to high losses, and a very small probability of catastrophic losses. So every risk is a curve. For example, like you can, uh, like our health, like you can fall and most of the time nothing will happen. Or you could fall and get a bruise. Again, that's kind of your low to moderate impact. And with a small probability, you can fall and break an arm or a leg. And with a minuscule probability, but still not impossible, it's not a zero probability, it's very small, but you can fall and hit your head and you can die. And so every risk is this spectrum from nothing to catastrophe, every risk on the planet. Um, and the job of risk management is to understand this range from nothing to catastrophe for most common risks in, in the business. And so the first point, that I'm, um, I'm trying to make is that there's, there's such a concept called expected losses. And, and that means that um, if you operate in a shop, somebody will shoplift. It's inevitable. If you have a child, they will fall and bruise themselves. It's inevitable. If you um, trade on stock exchange, you will lose money some of the time. It's inevitable because you won't be able to guess everything right. Uh, whenever, like, whenever you do, like, if you ordered a delivery, it will be delayed sometimes. And if you, um, you know, purchased, uh, like, I don't know, if you drive a car, you will have some incidents. You may have smaller incidents, you may have larger incidents, but there is this concept called expected losses. Basically looking at your internal statistics and talking to other entrepreneurs around you, you can expect to lose certain amount of, of money because that's just an inherent part of doing business. You may lose it through poor logistics. You may lose it through staff. You may lose it through customers who uh, take the product but don't pay. You may lose it through foreign exchange fluctuations. You may lose it through uh, banks increasing in interest rates and so on. So there are always things like expected losses. And this is why it's so fundamentally important to don't just kind of plan in single point number, single numbers, because whenever you think the future holds, we always forget about expected losses, which is kind of this little buffer that you always need to put on top of it.
So it's very important to kind of review historical losses for, you know, whatever, basically in your budget, in your business plan, you have different line items. And just having a look at different line items and saying, well, historically, my costs for this product increased because such and such. And so maybe I should put a little buffer on top of that. And uh, historically, I sold less than I anticipated because such and such. So maybe I need to put a little buffer into the other side. Uh, of the So the, the first point is very, very important. Uh, expected losses are given in the business. And ignoring them is just setting up yourself for unpleasant surprises because at the end of the year, like when you start reconciliation, you're like, oh, I didn't perform as well as I, as I hoped. But the reason is not that you didn't perform as well as you hoped. The reason is that you hoped for something completely unrealistic because in reality, expected losses were always there. And it's important to know what they are and add them to your uh, planning and budgeting. And if, for example, expected losses are too great, then that gives you a hint that maybe you need to spend some of that money instead of just putting expected losses, kind of adding it to your budget. Maybe you need to spend some of that money on mitigating the risk. For example, you know, reducing the theft or reducing the costs lost on logistics or reducing some other uh, cost that historically has been very uh, volatile. So that kind of, that drives you to this first point of we need to, you know, expected losses are given but you don't have to accept large expected losses because you can actually mitigate them. So that's point number one. So, so Alex, so what I'm going to do here, just because of time constraints that we're going to have today, um, this is going to be our teaser for those who, because um, you have two more points, checking that businesses can survive possible worst case scenarios and having a plan, multiple scenarios, B, C, and D, just in case. And, mm -hmm. and But for purposes of, of uh, our time constraints, what yes. I'm going to suggest to those who are interested in learning more about this, they can, they can send an email to us at catch, catch a ball at 40strategy.com, C-A-T-C-H at 40strategy.com. Alex, where can they, if they want to get this directly from you, where, where can they contact you on that? Um, so, so the best place to find answer to this and many other questions is the Risk Awareness Week, which is kind of this online library of different workshops and deep dives into various risk management topics. And the easiest place to find is this year's, which is 2022.riskawarenessweek.com. And um, then, of course, if you just Google Alex Sidorenko risk, then it's easy. It's, it's quite easy to find me. Perfect. Okay. So we're going to leave it at that. It's a good, good little teaser because... Because as you can tell, if you've been listening, Alex is, is clearly an expert in this. And, and even when you were just talking about donating or expected losses, I was thinking about headcount, people, resources. You know, we think we hire somebody and we think they'll never leave. And if anything's been more consistent in the past two years, it's been people leaving their businesses to go somewhere else. And it's amazing how many times we don't even plan for that contingency, right? Exactly. You lose a key salesperson who might be representing 25% of your sales and people are like, oh, we'll just replace it. Not always. Right. You know, there's there's like significant risks that we don't plan for properly. We don't have contingency put in uh, to help mitigate that on, on a regular basis. And so um, I think this is fascinating. I'm going to stop the share here. Now, I'm going to go to the pop of the personal side, Alex. I always like to hit on that a bit. I love it. You're wearing a blue sweatshirt right now with a octopus. It looks like that's in there. You you just were love it. Uh, and, and you were recently you said you were in Barcelona um, with your family. So you obviously have some balance, so to speak in your life. 
how do you, you have a lot going on. You have the risk awareness week. You are dealing with significant, um, it seems like you really passionate, fun things to be able to challenge on a global and with business and with insurance that you're doing with your clients on a regular basis. How do you, what type of habits are you doing on a consistent basis to help make sure that you can keep up your energy, your focus to, to maximize your own personal output? Um, I, I don't know if it's replicable, uh, but I, I can definitely share my story. So uh, about seven or eight years ago, I decided to move away from a big city to a small village in Spain. And even when I worked in Switzerland, I still kind of traveled back and forth from a small village in Spain, uh, a little co coastal village. And uh, what really kind of energizes me is um, walking kids to school and then kind of going for a walk with my wife on the beach and just seeing the mountains around and a bigger proportion of sunny days in the year and seeing the, the sea and the water. Um, that somehow just gives me energy to have fun. And I obviously love the risk management. By the way, the octopus is the um, logo of the risk awareness uh, week. And um, yeah, there's like there's the whole story on uh, why it is the octopus, like the whole scientific story. But reality is just my wife thought it was a great idea. And I loved it so much. So I thought, yeah, why, why not octopus? Um, so it's actually, it's an octopus destroying traditional risk management techniques, which have scientifically been proven to be ineffective, um, which is, which is a little theme, uh, theme of mine. So, yeah, I, I think, I think it's just being close to nature somehow energizes me a lot. That's awesome. And going to the next part behind that a little bit. So that, that's what helped brings you towards that. And you have the... So I love that you have that concept of you're going to be with your family. You're going to be out near there. So you do live in Spain today. Is that correct? Is that where your actual yes, location yes. is? Okay. Okay. So forgive me. Cause I had mentioned beforehand, you're based because I based out of Switzerland, but Spain is actually where you, where you reside. And um, so moving to the next part behind um, your book that you have, that you've, you've designed um, tell us a little bit more, just, just really briefly in like one minute, why should people download that book that already 150,000 people have downloaded before? Um, well, it's um, uh, it, it's it's my uh, my answer to academic writing, uh, because a friend of mine, many years ago, a friend of mine convinced me to write a a couple of chapters for some academic uh, textbook on the topic of risk, and so we did that. But then the um, the publisher came back saying, "Oh, you need to add a lot of fluff." Like you basically, this doesn't like it, it's just it's too too short, too too to the to the to the point, too practical. Like you need the history, the problem setting, like a lot of the fluff that you normally see in books. And, and I hated it so much. Like I hated that response. It was it was everything. It was basically the opposite of what I believed in all my life. That I want short, concise, direct. Like because most problems, if you take the fluff out, really has like a very simple solution. Most problems on the planet have very simple solutions when you just kind of get to the uh, to the bottom of it. Um, so I decided to um, not write anything for the academic paper. And in fact, I stopped, you know, I even stopped teaching at universities because I used to teach at universities uh, before uh, because just that, that whole conversation relationship with academic world just, just didn't, I, did, I, I just didn't understand it. Uh, and I, um, 
I, I wrote together with a friend of mine this uh, book. It's only 100 pages. Like it's not it's not long, but it's basically step by step guide to try and implement risk management in uh, uh, small to medium sized businesses. And we made it available for free and in different kind of in different places. And uh, it, it just it just kind of went viral. Um, I, I think as of today, it's closer to 200,000 uh, downloads from all sorts of places. It has like an audio version, uh, written version in a few languages. Um, it has you know, training version, like slide versions, presentation. Like it just converted into this whole universe. And it's really easy to find. If you Google free risk management book, it, it, it's number one in, in Google. Awesome. From ResearchGate, which is one of the platforms where the book is can get, you know, distributed, or you can download it from your torrent. So, second part here is now a book. You, you made a mention of a couple books throughout the the period. What is a book that you think that's not your book that you'd recommend for our audiences that you think it have a significant impact on their thinking? Uh, so, I have another article. Uh, I, I have, by the way, you know, about five hundred article, uh, five hundred articles, and about six hundred videos. Um, uh, but this article, it's called 16 Best Risk Management Books. And if you Google just best risk management books, it's also number one uh, in Google. But if I was to single out one, um, or actually I would single out two, because they, they just you know, risk management is just two different disciplines, scientific disciplines. There's one by Dan Ariely called Predictably Irrational. Uh, and it's basically a lot of research that uh, neuroscience has to offer on why we make bad choices, even though we think we make good choices, but we just, we, evolution has not built us in the way to process risk uncertainty and risk information. So predictably rational by Dan Ariely and uh, on the kind of the mathematical side is Sam Savage uh, book called Flow of Averages. And that's basically a, a very detailed explanation why every business plan, every investment proposal, every budget, uh, every valuation on the planet is fundamentally flawed and how to make it better. So, so it's, you know, for businesses, I think these kind of are two fundamental books. Dan Ariely and Sam Savage, um, he's a Stanford uh, professor and son of uh, Jimmy Savage, who's like the godfather of modern statistics. Um, so, so these two books, I'd say, would be the kind of the life changing for entrepreneurs. Perfect. So, Alex, how can people uh, reach out and learn more about you? I know you mentioned earlier, but just to repeat it one, one more time. Sure. The, it, it's very easy to find me uh, using the kind of the name of the blog called Risk Academy. Um, if you Google Risk Academy, it just pops up with everything: the conferences, the web, the YouTube channel, the the blog and all the ways to contact me from inside there. That's perfect. Alex, it has been a real pleasure to have you on the Measure Size podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Carl. Thank you to our listeners. That's right. And to all of our guests, once again, thank you so much for helping make this one of the top podcasts globally. Um, please continue to support us. And we're wishing you the very best at Measuring Success. Have a wonderful day.